0: How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, indeed it faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Happy are those who live in your house, ever singing your praise. Happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. The God of gods will be seen in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, happy is everyone who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: As we continue our series in the book of Ephesians, this morning we are in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand all in this evil day. And having done this, to stand firm. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this morning, we find ourselves in the very last chapter of the Ephesians. And to fully appreciate where we are this morning, we have to remember where we've come from. Ephesians is a big book, and when I say big, I'm not talking about length. I'm talking about depth. It's so short, you could read it in a matter of minutes, but so deep we could all spend the rest of our lives mining it for riches and that would not be a life wasted. So how did we get here? Well, Paul opens up the letter to the Ephesians with one of the most spectacular passages in all of Scripture. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, not yesterday or the day before, but before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he chose us. In love, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our glorious, eternal inheritance until we attain possession of it. And then he goes on in Ephesians 2, and he says, you were dead in your sins and now you're alive. That you were far off and God and Christ has brought you near. That you were once divided, Jew and Gentile, but that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down and the two are now one, the people of God. And what that means is this, Paul is saying, if you're hearing this letter, if you're hearing these words, everything has changed for you. You're no longer just another man or woman walking down the street, living like this life is all there is doing whatever seems right to you at any given moment, living with no allegiance to anyone or anything other than yourself. No, if you are hearing this letter, you belong to the people of God. If you're here in this church today, you belong to the people of God. Everything has changed. And that's just Ephesians 1 and 2. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5, he goes out to say, well, how then should we live? And he, he says, let all anger and malice and bitterness be gone. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. Forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. Walk in love. Be angry, sure, but do not sin. Remember what God has done for you and let that affect every interaction you have. And then in Ephesians 5, right before our passage today, he goes through what at that time was called the Roman household codes. And if you were anyone living in a society, there were a set of expectations for how you were to behave in these household codes. And the codes were made up of husbands and wives, parents and children, bond servants and masters. And you had rules and regulations and customs and expectations that you were meant to follow. And Paul takes this new gospel reality, this new kingdom of God reality, and applies it to all these different situations. Setting the seeds to totally blow the household codes apart. And then we find ourselves in today's passage. And just imagine if you were one of the original members of the Ephesian church hearing this letter read aloud. You've probably recently converted to this new movement, this Jesus movement, and you're still trying to figure everything out, but you're just soaking it up. You want to learn as much as you can about Jesus and the kingdom of God and what it means to be a part of this new community, what it means that the tomb is empty. And by the time we get to our passage today, You've got to be on the edge of your seat. You've got to be wondering, what now? Because this passage, if you'll notice, starts out with the word, finally. Finally. This is Paul's last little nugget before the the letter ends. This is his last little word before departing. This is the last thing he wants them to hear. Finally. You're on the edge of your seat. What must it be? What do you want us to know? And what he says is basically two things. Number one, remember who our enemy is. Remember who our enemy is. And number two, remember how we fight this enemy. Remember who our enemy is and remember how we fight this enemy. You were not saved to sit on the sidelines. You were saved into a war. You were saved, Paul says, into a cosmic battle. Remember this and remember how you fight. So let's, let's break these two down. Number one, remember who your enemy is. Maybe some of you are familiar uh, with the work of Flannery O'Connor. She was a novelist in Georgia in the 50s and 60s. She lived on a peacock farm just south of Atlanta and she was a very devout Catholic and she's most known for her collection of short stories and a couple novels and these stories all take place in for the most part in rural Georgia with just normal everyday people people that are like people that we know here in Birmingham or people that we grew up with and they're kind of odd They make sense and they don't make sense. They're full of familiar characters, but there's something just a little off as you read her stories. There's a pulse going on in the background, and you can't quite figure it out or put your thumb on it, but it makes you a little uncomfortable. And you finish one of her novels, and you kind of just think, what did I just read? And it used to bother me. Because I just couldn't, I, I loved her novels, I couldn't stop reading them, and her short stories especially, but I also couldn't figure them out. And one day I read, um, I got a book, uh, which was a collection of her letters, and she was a prolific letter writer, and in one of these letters, she's writing to a friend, and she says something that made all of her stories just click. She said, I have found in reading my own writing that my subject in fiction is the action of grace in territory largely held by the devil? She said, "When you read my stories, when I read my stories, what I find, what's really going on underneath the interactions of our of the characters and the development and their conversations and what they do and don't do, say and don't say, underneath it all, pulsating through the whole thing, is the action of grace in enemy territory, in territory that Satan." belongs to him. And when we read Scripture, we find the exact same thing. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says the God of this age has blinded the hearts and the minds of those who have not yet come to a knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. And when you read the rest of Scripture, what you see is that sin, this word we throw around a lot, sin is not just the bad things we do. It's not just the way in which we've wronged other people or wronged God. It is that. It is 100% that. But it's not just that. It's also this force that's lurking in the background, that's scheming, that's maligning and distorting and seeking to unravel all of God's good creation. And in Flannery O'Connor's story, she sets it up so that there is some little action of redemption in the middle of it all. And when we look on the cross of Jesus Christ, we find the same thing. We find a massive act of redemption in the middle of it all. We find the action of grace and territory which Satan thinks belongs to him. Therefore, Paul writes in this passage... To remember, remember who your enemy is, remember who you're fighting against. He says to keep guard against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this sounds weird to us. It sounds a little too Star Warsy, the Force, the dark side—it just sounds—it just sounds weird to us. But this is the language of Scripture. This is the language God inspired Paul to use in putting this letter together. It can seem foreign and outlandish, but Scripture says, to some degree, this is our reality—that there are things which are deeper than what we can see. So the question for us is: Do we really believe this? Do we believe that reality is deeper than what our eyes can see? Do we believe that there are forces at work that want to see everything fall apart, to see peace treaties fall apart, to see marriages fail, to see churches such as Independent Presbyterian Church unravel at its seams? Do we believe this? Last weekend, we had our fall kickoff, and if you were there, it was a fun time. I'm still recovering from my time in the dunk tank. And it really feels like things are starting to get back to normal. It really feels like we're on the up and up again. Wounds from the past are beginning to be healed. We're gathering again as a body, albeit still masked, unfortunately. Just last week, we started Sunday school and youth group again, and I just ran in here from Sunday school, and it really feels like things are moving and shaking again. We're about to welcome Kevin and his family. It feels like we're on the move again as a church family. It feels like we're on the up and up, and I think we are. I really do. If anything, God has proven to all of us that He is not done with us. But have we thought about the ways in which that might make us vulnerable? The ways in which our ancient enemy might be scheming and lurking in the background, egging us on to be divisive, to gossip, to slander, to forget who we are in Christ Jesus. Have we considered this? I want us all to hear Paul's reminder today we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil, and the heavenly places. So when conflict comes as we gather together again, and it will come, when hurt comes as we gather together again, and it will come, remember this passage. Remember Paul's warning. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And in fact, we have an enemy who wants to see us fail. So remember that your brothers and sisters in the pew next to you are not your enemy. Those who hurt you are not your enemy. There's deeper realities, and we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That leaves us with our second point. Remember how you fight this enemy. But before we get there, we have to ask, what do you do when you have an enemy? Well, if you're a lawyer, before you go to work, you put your suit on. If you're a doctor or a nurse, you put scrubs on before you go to the hospital. If you're an employee at my favorite establishment, Chick-fil-A, you put on your uniform and you come very prepared to respond to thank you with my pleasure. And you would never go play pickup basketball in high heels in a dress or go to a job interview wearing your pajamas. Wherever we go, or whatever we're doing, we dress appropriately. We come prepared. So if you're in a battle, you wear the right armor. You dress for action. But at this point, I have a confession to make. I actually struggle with this part of the passage. Everything I've said from the beginning until now comes really easy for me. All I've said to you is what Paul has already said, what God has already spoken through Paul in Ephesians 1 through 5. Just, I've just laid out before you, this is what it means to be in Christ. This is what our new reality is. And then in Ephesians 6, all I've done so far is talk about these forces that are scheming against God's people, these forces of evil. And that's easy for me because I believe it. It's not hard It's really not hard to believe in evil. Atheists believe in evil. This is not a distinctly Christian thing to think is real. Just look at wars. Look at the Holocaust. Look at the pain that comes when a loved one dies of cancer. Look at Afghanistan. Just these past few weeks. When things fall apart... Sure, we can, we can point fingers and say, oh, it was this policy, it was that, it was this party, it was that party. But really, at the end of the day, it's just evil lurking in the background using whatever can be used to bring chaos. And even right now in Afghanistan, we have brothers and sisters in the faith, in the faith who are expecting any moment to be killed for their witness to Jesus Christ. There's evil in the world and it's real. And so when Paul comes to this passage and he tells us to put on the armor of God, if I'm honest with you, it just feels kind of silly. It feels like he's asking us to play dress up. It feels childish. And I, and I kind of had this feeling when I was given this passage at first. I was excited to be able to speak to you all. And I was also like, oh no, not the armor of God. That It just seems so childish. I don't know what to do with that passage. And every time I preach, I like to go on Google Images and and find a picture, a famous painting or stained glass of the passage that I'm preaching. So, for this this morning, a few weeks ago, I went on my MacBook and I typed in Ephesians 6, Arm of God. And unfortunately, my worries were confirmed because there were no breathtaking paintings by Michelangelo. No beautiful stained glass. No, the only thing that I could find on Google Images for this passage was a cartoon Roman soldier. And it just kind of reinforced this nudge that I have that this is just so childish. We're talking about evil, and he's talking about putting on a costume. But our faith is kind of childish, isn't it? Our faith is kind of silly, isn't it? Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul says, the cross is the foolishness of God. That God uses what the world considers foolish to bring man's wisdom to nothing. And it's kind of silly, if you think about it, that we really believe that a Jewish teacher from 2,000 years ago died and rose again And his death is going to make all things new. Our faith seems silly, but we believe it nonetheless. And we have brothers and sisters who are days away from martyrdom because of this silly faith. So as we get to this section on the armor of God, I invite you all to join with me in just embracing what can seem counterintuitive, what can seem silly. And knowing that usually it's the silly things. It's usually the things that seem foolish in our own eyes, such as a Jewish teacher willingly dying on a cross. It's usually in these things where God is most up to something. So here we find ourselves exhorted to fasten the belt of truth first. Fasten the belt of truth. Well, what is the truth? If you've been paying attention, hopefully we've all arrived at that already because Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 are all meant to tell us what the truth is, the truth that our sins are forgiven, that we belong to the people of God, that all things will soon be made, n- made new and that we are saved into a war. But the truth is also that no matter how bad things are outside, no matter how much the war is raging, we are safe, we are secure, we are Christ. This is the truth. And Paul tells us to wear it like a belt. And I love that because maybe you remember in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, especially in the KJV, it's really good in the KJV, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But here's the thing, it's not just truth that, is, that sets you free, it's truth that is known that sets you free. It's truth that is ingrained in your being, truth that you let really sink in, that you grab hold of, that you wear like a belt. It's the truth that you know that will set you free, the truth that no matter what comes your way, you belong to a deeper movement, the movement of the kingdom of God. And when the belt is on, we follow with the breastplate of righteousness. I think this is logical, right? Because the truth is that our righteousness is not our own in the first place. Our righteousness is Christ. The truth is that we can never live as we ought to. And the truth is that we burden ourselves day in and day out with guilt and shame. But the truth is that we are perfectly accepted, known, and loved in the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus. So take the truth, strap it on you like a belt, and then follow with the breastplate of righteousness. Put on Christ and walk in the gospel of peace. I just moments ago came from Sunday school where we're going through the parables with our youth this fall. And as I was kind of getting ready for the series and the parables, I was reading through um, Eugene Peterson's book on the parables. And Eugene Peterson is one of my favorite authors. He was a Presbyterian minister who uh, passed away just a few years ago when I was in college. And, And in this book, he's commenting on how Luke portrays Jesus in the Gospels. And he makes this one comment that has really stuck with me. He says, in the Gospels, what you find... Is Jesus walking around unhurried, continuously interruptible? What you find is Jesus unhurried, continuously interruptible. I don't know about you, but usually I'm the opposite. I'm always in a hurry because I'm running late, and I'm never interruptible because I'm always running late to get somewhere. But that's not Jesus. And when you read the stories of Jesus, what you find is he's just walking up and down, left and right, all around with his disciples, and he's just telling stories. And constantly he's interrupted. A woman who is suffering will reach out in a crowd and touch the hem of his garment. A leper will draw near saying, you can heal me. Or a Pharisee or a teacher of the law will say, hey, I've got a question for you, seeking to, to really get him. And notice, Jesus welcomes the interruption. He welcomes it. And he's completely at peace. And if you think about it, not only is Jesus Christ fully God, he's also fully man. So what that means is that he knew to some degree what was going on, right? He knew he was on his way to the cross. He knew he was on his way to deep suffering. He knew better than anyone this cosmic reality that we're in. But he's totally at peace. He's not anxious about it. Why? Because he had the belt of truth on and he knew that this plan that's unraveling has been in the works from before the foundations of the earth. And he knew, yes, suffering is going to come. Yes, I'm going to drink the cup of wrath for the sake of my sheep, but I will be victorious, so I am completely at peace, because it's all going to work out. And so Paul says, wear peace like a sandal. Put it on your feet and walk like Jesus is, knowing that Christ is walking with you and He is your peace. What would it look like if we lived that way? If we were so confident that everything is unfolding according to our Father's purpose, that we can be interrupted and bring that peace to those who need it. We can be interrupted when we get off 31 and someone is standing on the side of the road asking for help. We can go get them food, we can sit down, we can talk to them, we can humanize them and enter into relationship with them. Or when a friend uh, is, is really struggling and they call us, and it's 9 o'clock at night. And if you're like me, that means you're just winding down, you're reading a book, and you just want to go to bed. But, I, but if I'm living with the belt of truth on and walking in the gospel of peace, I can pick up the phone. I'm interruptible. And I have peace to share. I have comfort to bring, because I have been comforted by God. What if we live that way? I think Paul in this passage is giving us an opportunity to stop, reflect, reflect. Reevaluate and live that way too. And as we walk in this peace, we take up the, shor- the sword of faith. We expect, he says, take up the sword of faith for the fiery darts of the evil one. We expect things to go wrong. We expect bad things to happen. Just two days ago, I was on my way here. This is Friday afternoon. I was on my way here to print off this manuscript so I could study it over the weekend, and I got hit head on. I got in a car accident. And everything was fine. It wasn't that big of a deal, but I never made it to the church to print this off. And and and, this passage was in the back of my mind, right? This is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that I've had the same car for 10 years, and I've never been hit, except when I'm on my way to get ready to speak to God's people on Sunday. Be on guard against the schemes of the devil. Take up the shield of faith and expect the fiery darts of the evil one. Expect things to go wrong. Because we have an enemy who's doing everything he can to make sure that happens. And as we're doing this, Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, Scripture is not just a collection of old stories. It's not just something we study. It's something we wield. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the desert? Every time Satan tempted him to forsake the calling that he had, he responded with Scripture. He responded with the Word of God. He took God's words. He took Scripture and he wielded it like a sword three times. And he was triumphant. This is why... We preach on Scripture. This is why we have Bible studies. This is why at Youth Group, I take our youth through Scripture. Because we're in a battle and this is a sword. And then Paul says after you've put on the armor of God, what do you do when you go into battle? You pray. You pray for yourself, you pray for one another. You pray for your brothers and sisters who are struggling. You pray for the strong. You pray for the weak. And you pray because, you know, at the end of the day, the armor of God is not something you put on, but something God puts on you. Something that Christ puts on you because everything we have, we have because He died and rose again. And when we go out from these walls, we go out knowing that Christ has gone before us. And as we continue to regather, three times in this passage, Paul says to stand firm. So as we continue to regather as God's people, as we welcome our new pastor, we stand firm, knowing that Christ is there holding us up along the way, knowing that. Fiery darts will come. But one day, Jesus will come again to make all things new. And our standing now is just a foretaste. It's just a sign pointing to the world that there's a deeper reality. And God is always on the move. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.